Everything about the gospel is predicated on relationships. Fundamentally, we are tied to the gospel because of our relationship with God the Father, through God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit. Everything about us as gospel people is tied and tethered to Calvary. It is because of that relationship that we have with Jesus that it shapes and forms every other relationship in life. As Christians, the gospel first takes hold of our heart. The gospel is an inside job. It starts on the inside and then it works its way out. It works its way into every relationship in our home. Permeates every relationship in church. Spills over into all of our relationships in the culture. Everything about us is taught to us because of the gospel. It's the gospel that teaches me who I am. It's the gospel that shows me and shapes me on how I treat other people. Well, let's just be honest. Relationships are hard, aren't they? Relationships are downright messy. Relationships are made up of sinful people who relate to other sinful people, and sometimes the end result is just downright being sinful. It's not easy to treat other people the way you want to be treated. It's hard to forgive. It's even harder to forget. There are more than a few days that I don't even get along with myself, let alone anybody else. Maybe you've heard that frustrated preacher who simply came to this conclusion, church would be easy if it weren't for the people. Maybe you've heard that limerick, to live above with saints we love, now that'll be glory. But to live here below with the saints we know, now that's a different story. Gospel relationships are hard. So how do we have gospel relationships that honor the God of the gospel? This morning, I want us to continue our 10-part sermon series through the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. It's a sermon series that's just entitled Building God's Church. I want to speak to you on the subject today of gospel relationships. I invite you to take your Bible, draw your sword, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Once you've joined me there, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. I want to read the first 16 verses of that chapter in your hearing. 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 16. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repairing their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left alone puts her hope in God, continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help, 
But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith. He is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. And thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into a habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to say. So I counsel younger widows to marry, have children. Manage their homes. Give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. So if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them. Not let the church be burdened with them. So the church can help those widows who are really in need. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. When you and I consider gospel relationships, I think from this passage there are at least three traits of gospel relationships. First and foremost, a gospel relationship is multi-generational in scope. Secondly, it is morally saturated. And third, a gospel relationship is ministry-oriented. First and foremost, a gospel relationship is multi-generational in scope. Did you notice that the church membership of First Baptist Church Ephesus had multiple generations? Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. This kind of teaching and understanding is consistent all through the pastoral epistles. Because just as every single family of every civilization is multi-generational, so is the family of God. The family of God has multiple generations in it, and it's by God's design that such is the case. In 2 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy of the faith that first lived in his grandmother Lois, in his mother Eunice, and now, I believe, lives in you. Paul said to his second son in the ministry, Titus, he said, teach older men to be temperate, younger men to be self-controlled. Teach older women to be reverent and respectful. Teach younger women to love their husbands and love their children. All through the pastoral epistles, you find these examples of older generations and younger generations. Because a healthy church has multiple generations in it. That's one of the reasons why I've always been so attracted to this local congregation. We have ministry from the womb to the tomb and everything in between. We've got ministry for our youngest of children. We've got ministry to our oldest of adults. And I think that a, a healthy local church today has 
five generations that are active in it. Five generations, and every generation has its own stamp of vocabulary and values, of shared experiences and identity. But every local church needs to have multiple generations. It is unhealthy for a local church to look around and only see gray hair or no hair. It is equally detrimental for a church to look around and only see skinny jeans and Nike Air Force Ones. No, we need each other. We need the proven wisdom of those that have gone before us. We need the creative zeal of those who are coming up behind us. We need to be a, a place that is multi-generational. Because gospel relationships have always been multi-generational in scope. So we have to be a people that prioritize ministry to every generation. To the oldest of men to the youngest of men, to the oldest of women, to the youngest of women. We are a faith family, and, and we love the fact that God is bringing multiple generations to this church. I realize that one of the strongest magnets in society is a generation. We like to be with people of shared life experiences. We prove time and time again that birds of a feather flock together. We like to be with people that are in our same stage of life. In fact, many of our small groups, many of our Sunday school classes are put together that way, right? And there's value in that. I mean, we need to be with people that look like us and have the same, you know, struggles and difficulties and are in the same station and stage of life. Nothing wrong with that. But it's only wrong if we only cultivate those relationships with people of our same generation. We need to be intentional and reach up a generation and down a generation. The healthiest of people, the healthiest of churches, they have the capacity to reach up multiple generations. And to reach down multiple generations. Do you have meaningful Relationships with people that are older than you and younger than you. I mean, meaningful, genera uh, meaningful relationships. There's some younger men who may look at the older men and say, look, he's an old man. He's out of touch. He smells like Old Spice. And all of that might be true. But he still has something valuable to teach and to share with you. There just might be a an older lady who looks at a young lady and thinks to herself, I have nothing to give this lady. I have no way to relate to her. She's so busy. She's a know-it-all. I mean, she has all the answers already figured out. And she doesn't even have children yet. I mean, she knows everything. And I can't understand her vocabulary and her language, let alone how she thinks. But, oh, dear sweet lady, can I just remind you, sister, that that young lady needs you? And there was a time when you were her age. And you had some of the same worries that she has. Maybe you handle them differently. And maybe that young lady needs to hear some wisdom from you. Friend, we need each other. We cannot go at this thing alone. And we need multiple generations. We need to be a place of builders and boomers and busters and bridgers and millennials and generation X, Y, and Z and everything else. I mean, we need to be a place 
where people can come and we share wisdom and creativity from one another because we desperately need each other. We understand that age demographics, they are powerful demographics. But the Ancient of Days draws all people to himself, the young and the old. And so Paul is simply reminding Timothy that gospel relationships are multi-generational in scope. But secondly, gospel relationships are morally saturated. It is morality and ethics that sets the guardrails in every single one of our relationships. So Paul reminds Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly. It's the only time in the New Testament that word rebuke is used. Outside the New Testament, this specific Greek word gives the word picture of a severe verbal pounding. And Paul is reminding his son of the ministry, you don't treat men that way. You don't treat them as a verbal punching bag. They are older than you. They have earned your respect, so you treat them with admiration. You have to measure every word that tumbles from your lips, and you measure it against the Scripture. And so you always speak with respect to them and about them. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but instead encourage him, exhort him as if he were your father. It's not that Timothy could never have a tough conversation with anybody of an older generation. No, he could rebuke, but just don't rebuke harshly. He needed to treat him with the respect that he would treat his earthly dad. Now, you may recall that Timothy's earthly father was a Greek man from Lystra. By all accounts, he probably wasn't a believer. Timothy did not share Christ and the relationship with Christ that he had in his life, his father did not have that in his own life. There was a great divide between Timothy and his dad. But even that did not give Timothy permission to be disrespectful. So you treat the older men as spiritual grandfathers and spiritual dads. Treat younger men as brothers. When Paul distinguishes between the older men and the younger men, when he says treat the younger men as brothers, he's not saying that you've only got to guard your lips with old guys. But when it comes to the younger guys, loose your lips and just say whatever you want to in an effort to connect with them and try to be cool. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying you treat them as if they were your brother. Now, if you grew up in a home with a brother or brothers, you understand that, you know, sometimes you would fight with your brother, but all the time you'd fight for your brother. He's your brother. You protect him, you defend him, you come to his help, and you come to his aid. You come to him because you love him. He is your brother. He may get on your ever-loving last nerve at times, but he's still your brother. Listen, I can talk about my brother, but you can't talk about my brother. You know what that's like? You can talk, I can talk about my family, but you can't talk about my family. Why? Because they're my family. I would protect my brother. I would defend my brother. And this is the understanding that Paul has for Timothy. He says, when you look at the various men of the congregation, the oldest of men, you, you treat with the utmost respect as if they were your father. And the other men who are your age or younger, they're just like your brothers. I've been a pastor for nearly 25 years. 
I started when I was 10 years of age. But I've been a pastor for nearly 25 years. And I've done my best, and not always really, really well, but I've done my best to see the oldest of men in the congregation as a spiritual grandfather. And the older men, I try to see them as a spiritual dad. Those men that are about my age, I try to regard them as a spiritual brother. Those young men, those children that are becoming teenagers, those teenage boys that are becoming young men, I try to see them as my spiritual son. I think that is the model that that Paul gives to Timothy, not just for the side of the men, but also the side of the women. He says you, you treat the older women as spiritual moms and the younger women as spiritual sisters. And likewise, over the last 25 years, I have done my best, not always, not always perfectly, but I've done my best to regard the oldest of ladies in the church as a spiritual grandmother. The older ladies as a spiritual mom to me. And those ladies that are about my age, I try to regard them as spiritual sister. And those little girls that are becoming young teenagers and those young teenage girls that are growing up into adulthood, I try to regard them as my daughters in the ministry. By God's grace, I have been able to put a face with all those categories. I realize not everybody can do that. Not everybody had the same experience that I had. Not, not everybody is in the same stage of life that I'm in. But I can tell you as I stand here today, I can give testimony that I can, I can put a face with every person, every category of types of individuals that I just described. For if you are the oldest of saints in this congregation, I regard you as a spiritual grandparent. And I was raised with some tremendous grandparents. They loved the Lord and they loved me. So, old guys, if I were to ever slip up and call you Marvin or Jesse, that's a compliment. If I ever said of you that you're like my uh, grandfather or papaw, that, that would be a compliment. In a similar way, to the oldest of ladies, if, if, if I ever said of you, you're, you're like Hallie or Millie, that is a compliment. Because my grandma and my nana, boy, those ladies loved me and pointed me to Jesus. If you're some of the older men and older women, older than I am, old enough to be my mom or my dad, I look at you as I look at my mom and my dad, and I have a high level of respect for my parents. Both dad and mom, they love Christ. They love each other. They love the church. And I was always raised with a high level of respect. So to the older men, I, I see you as my spiritual dad. Older ladies, I see you as a spiritual mom. To the men and women that are about my age, I, I'm the middle of three children. I've got the middle child syndrome. Anybody else in the house have the middle child syndrome? Yeah, we've always connected, haven't we? There's something significant about that. I've got an older sister and a younger brother. So I, it's easy for me to... See, ladies about my age, like Alicia, my sister, and men that are about my age, I see them as, as Brandon, my brother. For the last 20 years or so, I've been called dad by two people on this planet. And so it is not hard 
for me to see young ladies of the church like I value and see and regard my Molly Grace. It's not hard for me to look upon young men and to see them as Nathan, my son. God has blessed us with a darling daughter, a tremendous son. And so it's easy for me to put names and faces on you for the different categories of people. I think this is what Paul is talking about, that every relationship we have is marked by morality. Did you notice that in my relationship comparisons, I didn't compare anybody to my wife. And why is that? Well, she's in a class all by herself. There's nobody else like Jane Ellen. I mean, every other woman of the church, you're not my wife. There's only one woman that I can look upon and touch and treat with the affection of a wife, and that is the young lady called Jane Ellen. To the other ladies in the church and outside the church, hey, you're, you're my mom. You're my sister. You're my daughter. We don't date our moms. We don't date our sisters. We don't date our daughters. That would just be gross. This ain't Utah. This is the church of God. So we treat people a certain way, right? And when we regard people in, in certain categories, because Paul says to Timothy, you treat the ladies of the church with absolute purity. She's not just one of the guys. She's a lady. She's a lady in the Lord. You, you don't just treat her like anybody else. You treat her with absolute purity. You'll remember that in the streets of Ephesus, there was flowing promiscuity because the centerpiece of Ephesus was that pagan temple to Artemis, that goddess of fertility. So many vile things were done in that temple and outside that temple. And the city of Ephesus in the first century, it was risque and it was raunchy, but the church in Ephesus was called to be righteous and redemptive. 2,000 years have passed, not a whole lot's changed. We still live in a society that is risque and raunchy, and we're still a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that is righteous and redemptive. Now, how is that possible? It is because of gospel relationships. It is the gospel that ties us to Calvary. It is the gospel that shapes our understanding of who I am and how I treat other people. It's because of my relationship with Jesus Christ that it impacts every other relationship. It starts in my heart. It works out into my home. It spills over into the church and into the culture. Every relationship is shaped and marked by our understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. So gospel relationships are multi-generational in scope, and they are morally saturated. But third and finally, a gospel relationship is ministry-oriented. The bulk of the passage speaks to the truth of this trait. Paul specifically has a lot to say about the care of widows in the church. 
I think he's very concerned about this, but I also think he's using it as type of a microcosm of how we deal with each other. You know, God has always been concerned with widows, always. God has always been a God of deep compassion. In Deuteronomy, it says that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widows. James, the brother of our Lord, he said true religion is this, to look after orphans and widows and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That is true religion. At the very heart of Christianity is this caring compassion for other people. And God is concerned about widows. In fact, the early church, one of its first problems erupted in Acts chapter 6. Why? Because some widows were being neglected. And the church gathered around and said, we can't have this because this will give us a black eye in our society. We're trying to advance the gospel. And if we don't take care of people, then anything we say will not be heard. So we've got to be compassionate. God is very compassionate about, towards widows. And, and, and as a church, we should be too. Why? Because a widow represented one who was extremely vulnerable in the first century. An easy target of victimization. Because of a life experience, she no longer had a husband. That's always tragic. Some of you listening to my voice, you know the pain and the agony of standing at the casket of your husband. I mean, just mentioning it reminds you of just how much you miss him. The relationship, the companionship, the love. And in those days... Um, Maybe the man died because of age, perhaps. He passed away because of war. Maybe it was because of the daily dangers of travel in those days or wild animals or some other tragedy. But regardless, there was a woman who depended upon her husband and her husband was no longer there. And in those days, there were no pension plans. There were no Social Security checks that came to her mailbox. There were no Roth IRAs that they had given to for decades and decades. The one who protected her, the one who provided for her, he was no longer there. And so a widow was one who was in need. And Paul says on three occasions that we are to minister to those who are really in need. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 16. You heard it three times. Minister to those who are really in need. Paul understood that the church in that day, and I would say the church in this day, we can easily be overrun with needs of people. I'll go ahead and say this much. Um, this is just a little rabbit trail, but I'm a, I feel like it's sanctified, so I'm going I'm to chase it. If the comprehensive gaming bill passes, churches in Alabama will be overrun with needs. Overrun with needs. The church has always had to distinguish between the needs that they can meet and the needs that unfortunately they can't meet. So even here in the first century, Paul says to Timothy, you've got to minister to those widows who are really in need. For the ministry to widows supersedes the ministry to the general population. And even the ministry to widows has to be deciphered between ministry to those really in need and ministry to widows who might have another way to meet their need. And Paul says to his son, you minister to those who are really in need. You've got to be compassionate 
because God is compassionate. And so you minister to them. Every relationship is ministry-oriented. So minister to those who are really in need. Now, how do you distinguish between a widow who's really in need and one who's not in need? Here is the distinction. Does that widow have a family member who can take care of her? If she does, that family member needs to see her as an opportunity for ministry. Paul goes so far to say, if you don't take care of your immediate family, you've denied the faith, and you ought to be treated like an unbeliever. Those are strong words. We have a call of God to honor our father and mother. And the way we do that is that we minister to them in their point of need. And I know that many of you are at that spot of life where you are caring for aging parents. Don't grow weary in doing good. I know some of you know the reality of trying to minister and help your mom who is a widow. You keep on doing that. That is a noble task. Because it is a way that we, as Paul says, we pay them back and we fulfill that fifth commandment. To honor your father and mother is the first promise, uh, commandment with a promise that life may go well with you. I realize that sometimes when you're trying to minister to aging parents or minister to your widowed mom... I know sometimes that can be hard, difficult, stressful. Sometimes it can cause a tear, maybe multiple tears, to stream down your cheeks. But don't grow weary. You keep on doing that. It's a very noble task. It's a God-honoring task. And so Paul says the way you distinguish between the widow who's really in need and the widow who may have another way to meet her needs, does that widow have anybody else in the family that can help come alongside and see this relationship as an opportunity for ministry? Then there's some widows, they don't, have, they don't have any family. They're just dependent on God. They're the ones who are really in need. Apparently in those days, there was a list of widows. In order to be placed on that list, that was a sacred task. So to be placed on the list of widows, you had to have three criteria. Number one, the lady had to be over the age of 60. Because in that day, when you keep into account the life expectancy of most people, a woman who is 60 probably is not going to get remarried in the first century. The first century 60-year-old is like the present-day 90-year-old. There are some 90-year-olds who get remarried, but not many. And then also... This woman had to have been faithful to her husband. What's ironic is that the language that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is very reminiscent of the language he used in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, when speaking to pastors and deacons, he says that the pastor and deacon must be the husband of one wife. And we looked specifically at that ancient language, and it is a one-woman man. We said it was as much to do with his morality as his marital status. That he had to be a one-woman kind of man. In 1 Timothy 5, guess what the phrase is. That is translated and rendered must be faithful to her husband. Literally, it's another three-word phrase. A one-man woman. That's how Paul describes it. So what he's saying is, on this list, we don't want well-known floozies. On this list, we want ladies who are faithful to their husband. They are one man kind of women. They've been faithful to their husband. They've loved him the way they should. And they're known for their ministry. 
They were known by doing good deeds. Now, why would Paul say that? Because Paul is saying, listen, I don't want to put anybody on that list that's going to bring shame to the name of God and God's church. So only those who had good ministry, lay ministry in the church. What, what is the first thing that's listed there? They raised godly kids. They raised godly children. Do you know what will really help a lot of our cultural ills today? Is if godly guys and godly gals will stick and stay together in marriage and raise some godly kids. I know it sounds antiquated. I know it sounds old-fashioned. But it is so biblical that if God's people would take seriously raising some godly kids, it would change the culture. And the first thing that Paul says, when you think about the ladies that are placed on this list, they got to be over 60. They have to have been faithful to their husband. They are one-man type of women, and they've got to be known for their ministry of doing good deeds. They raised godly kids. They were hospitable. They helped the saints. Uh, they were ones who did a lot of good deeds. Because once again, Paul is saying, listen, we've got a reputation to uphold. The reputation is not something we've made, but we are godly people because God's church is a godly church. So we've got to look godly and act godly. We have to be godly. Paul does say a little bit uh, to those widows who are under the age of 60. He says to Timothy, I would not put them on that list if I were you. And the reason being is because in all likelihood, they're probably going to get married. I love what Paul is saying, and, and if you hear it clearly, he's pretty direct. What he's saying is that, hey, these ladies don't need a federal handout. They don't need a governmental program. They need a godly guy. That's what they need. They need a godly guy they can marry. What's a godly guy? A, God who, a guy who loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves his wife as Christ loved the church. I really thought some ladies would say amen right there. Because that is what a godly guy is. It's somebody who loves God with all the stuff that's inside of him and loves you, the wife, the way Christ loves the church. Paul says to the ladies uh, in verse 16, the last verse of our passage, hey, look, if, if you have some widows in your family, serve them well. Take care of them. There's a myriad of ways that you can serve the family of God. And so you look for opportunities to serve. Because in gospel relationships, every relationship is ministry-oriented. That's not how we look at people all the time, is it? Sometimes we look at relationships and we think to ourselves, what am I going to get out of this? I mean, I'll put something into it, but what am I going to get out of it? And oftentimes we see people as a commodity. What can we get from them? How can we steal or borrow or cheat the system, or cheat the Savior through them. That's not the way godly people see other people. No, gospel relationships see people as an opportunity for ministry. Every person in your sphere of influence has been divinely planted there so that you, the Christian, can ask the question, how can I serve him today? How can I serve her today? That's why you have relationships it's not about you. It's not what you're going to get out of it. It's what are you going to put into it. Because gospel relationships, yes, they're multi-generational in scope. And yes, they're morally saturated. For morality and ethics, it sets the guardrails of how we treat one another. But ultimately, 
gospel relationships see other people as ministry opportunities for it is ministry oriented. If we start looking at each other that way, that would change the paradigm. It would change how we see each other. It would revolutionize the church. It would turn the culture upside down. If you see people and ask the question, how can I serve you today? How can I begin a relationship with you today that is honoring unto God? Do you have those meaningful relationships? You say, well, how do I start a relationship with an old guy? How do I start a friendship with a young girl? How do you start any friendship? Talk. When you see people in the hallway, you speak. Say hello. How are you? And actually care. <laughs> right? And then you may just say, hey, let's go to lunch today. I'm not saying anything out of bounds. I'm just saying, hey, as a husband and wife, you're looking for an older couple or a younger couple. And you're saying, hey, who can we take to lunch today? Who can we just kind of pour into? And maybe it's instigated by the younger couple looking to the older couple. Maybe it's the older couple who's looking at the younger couple here in the church and saying, hey, we want to take you out for lunch today. Because it may develop into a relationship to the point that the younger couple would actually trust the older couple to watch their kids so that the younger couple could go on a date. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. See, relationships are ministry opportunities. You see people and you ask the question, how can I help you today? How can I serve you today? You say, but pastor, why in the world would I want to see people like that? I am too stinking busy. The reason you see people that way is because, remember, everything about us is tied to Calvary. So ministry from Christ motivates ministry for Christ. Has Jesus served you? Then you serve others. Has Jesus helped you? Then you help others. Has Jesus come alongside you? Then you come alongside others. What Jesus has done for you, you in turn do for others. Because everything about your life, every relationship is tied to Calvary. What Jesus did for you. And you ask the question, well what did Jesus do for me? Well 2,000 years ago he came on a relational rescue mission. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He was born in a rustic cave in a Bethlehem barn. The ancient of days became the infant of days. And Jesus came in a miraculous way. He was raised perfectly. He never did anything wrong. Never committed any sin in thought or deed. About the age of 30, he started a public ministry. He got 12 friends. We call them rednecks. They're disciples that circled him. And they changed the world. Turned it upside down. At the end of three years, Jesus was handed over to the religious rulers who then in turn gave him to the Roman authorities. And the Roman government executed Jesus. And Jesus went willingly and voluntarily. Not because he was a criminal, but because you and I are criminals. Not because he is empty in relationship, but you and I are empty in relationship. So Jesus took our spot. He took our punishment. That sin that separates us from God. Jesus became our substitute. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with a crossbeam strapped to his back. He went outside the city gate, up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. 
And there he was crucified. On those few hours in the third decade of the first century, on that Friday afternoon, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He paved the way so that we may have an eternal, everlasting relationship with God Almighty. Jesus died. He called the shots. He said, to tell us die, it is finished. Bowed his head, gave up the ghost, took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave. He stayed there on Friday, stayed there all day Saturday, even into Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up. Early on Sunday morning, Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended to the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day, he's coming back. He's going to come back and rescue his church. He's going to come back and get his friends. Until Jesus comes, I want to serve him. Until Jesus comes, I want to love him. Until Jesus comes, I want to talk about him. Until Jesus comes, I want to talk to him because I serve a risen Savior. And he's in the world today. And I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks to me a long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Because he lives in my heart. It's an inside job. He works his way into my home. Into the church. Into the culture. This morning, have you surrendered to this Jesus? If not, today can be the day of your salvation. The Bible is clear. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is acknowledge, I don't have a relationship with God. But friend, you can in Jesus Christ. Today you can come, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, Pastor, I, I need this relationship because I don't have it. And it's the only relationship that makes any difference for all of eternity. Maybe you're here and you are a Christian. But when you take an inventory of the relationships of your life, they are a hot mess. Your relationship with your spouse is not where it needs to be. Your relationship with your children, it's terrible. Your relationship at work, it's tanking. Your relationship in your community is not what it needs to be. And maybe on this day, you need to come and just pray and say, God, help me. I give you my relationships. Help me to see them the way you see them. As opportunities for ministry. Maybe you need to join the church today. Whatever it is God is calling you to do, won't you be obedient to him? Gospel relationships. They're multi-generational. They're saturated with morality. And they see other people as ministry opportunities. May God be praised. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. We pray that you'll be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.